If you're able, would you remain standing for the reading of God's Word? We're going to be reading Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk is not one of those easy books to find. It's right after Nahum, but that might not help either. Uh, if you find Micah and keep on going, you get almost there. Um, I'll tell you a page number on the Pew Bible, but we have four different versions of Pew Bibles in the sanctuary, so that wouldn't uh, really work. So Habakkuk chapter 3, we're going to read one verse, uh, we're going to read the chapter, it's a psalm written by Habakkuk, and this is the word of our Lord, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember me, mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand and there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence, and fever followed at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Median trembled. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation, and the light of your arrows they went, at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation, you trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses through the heap of the great waters. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation, The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. To the chief musician with the nine-stringed instruments, 
This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are God who speaks. Speaks to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You notice this is not First uh, John. I hope that you notice uh, that you also notice that, huh, we're going through First John, but he read from Habakkuk. Well, First um, John 5, 6, and following present a particular challenge. Um, there's a particular element in it that I want uh, a little more wisdom before um, uh, preaching on it. So I'm saving it, Lord willing, for next week. And uh, this morning I want us to look at Habakkuk. And especially verses 16 through 19 of chapter 3. But it's important that we read the whole chapter so that those can be placed in context. You read it, it's confusing. You don't get the warm and fuzzies uh, from, from reading it. It's no, it's no Isaiah 53, right? it's no Psalm 23, it's no, uh, none of those more easy uh, to understand passages. But I think we can benefit from it as we consider it this morning. There are some events in life that cause your lips to quiver or your knees to knock. We see that uh, those uh, Habakkuk's experience in verse 16. I'm going to read just verse 16 from the English Standard Version. It says this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So this is the experience. Isaiah, his lips, Habakkuk, his lips are quivering, his legs are shaking, his knees are knocking because of what he heard from the Lord. So there are those occasions in our, occasions in our lives where our, our lips quiver, our knees knock, perhaps the birth of your first child or a teenage son saying, I love you, perhaps the sight of your bride coming down the aisle toward you. When I'm officiating a wedding, I, I love looking at the groom uh, as the bride is, is, is coming uh, in because there's so many words that are expressed with the, the face of, uh, of the groom. Uh, perhaps a testimony of what God has done in the life of a sister or a brother in Christ causes your lips to quiver, or even perhaps a good sports movie when the underdog player causes a fumble, recovers the ball, and scores a uh, touchdown. And perhaps a death in the family, or a death in the church, or the news of tragedy causes your lips to quiver, your knees to knock. For Habakkuk, what made his lips quiver and the knees knock was knowing the power of God. Knowing the power of God to deliver and the power of God to destroy. That's what causes his lips to quiver and his knees to knock. I, I would like for us to see three things as we look at this passage, especially verses 16 through 19. I would like for us to see the love of God demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, I didn't see anything about Christ and the cross in this passage. Oh, I'll try to show you that. So I want us to see the love of God demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. But I also want us to see the terror of God demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. And then I want us to see the faith in God demonstrated in a change of perspective. The first two points... In verse 16, and then the last one in verses 17 through 19. 
So the love of God demonstrated on the cross. Look again at verse 16. I will again read from the ESV. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. The book of Habakkuk structured around questions that Habakkuk asked God. First, he was upset with the fact that the people of God, Israel, the, in essence the church of his time, were not following the Lord. They were, they were taking the Lord's name in vain in all they did. I don't mean just saying things, but they had the name of God upon them, but they were acting as if God was not their God. They were uh, squandering the blessings of the Lord. And Habakkuk stands before God and said, God, how long are you going to let this go? Aren't you going to fix this? Aren't you going to punish or discipline your people? Aren't you going to rescue your name? And God says, yes, Habakkuk, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do that by bringing the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, a more wicked people than Israel. And they're going to come and going to decimate you. And that's how I was going to, you know, I'm going to judge my people. Habakkuk hears that and goes, whoa, Lord. I did want you to act. My baby I was more thinking like, you know, no dinner or something like that. You're going to bring a more wicked nation to punish us? How's it going to go? How's, how's, how are people going to think about you? What are they going to think about you? That you're punishing your own people by a more wicked people? And God says, Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, the just shall live by faith. What he means by that is that Habakkuk, you are just, you're a righteous man. You have faith in me. You believe that the Messiah is rescuing, is, is rescuing you. So live according to that faith. And that faith tells you that I know what I'm doing. That's God speaking to Habakkuk. So live according to that. I will do what is right, whether you see it or not. And that's when we come to verse 16. Habakkuk, when, when God answered Habakkuk's questions by saying that the just will live by faith in God, Habakkuk turned his thoughts to the greatest display of God's redemptive power to date. What do you think verses 3 through 15 are about? You don't have to answer aloud, but just, you, you read it, we read it together. What, is ver, what are verses 3 through 15 about? It talks about the rivers being divided. It talks about uh, armies being drowned by the ocean. And God has something about having... Something against the rivers and the seas by splitting them. That's a reference to the Exodus. Not only the Exodus, but the conquering of the promised land. In the mind of the Old Testament saint, the Exodus was the greatest display of God's redemptive power. God had delivered his people from the bondage of slavery to Egypt. God mercifully revealed himself and gave them an identity by way of a covenant at Sinai. God purged them, purged them of their sins in the wilderness wanderings. God took them to a place of blessing He had prepared for them in the promised land. So the Exodus marked the beginning of God's constant, invisible presence with His people, and they treasured that. So when an Old Testament saint wanted to know if God loved him, if an Old Testament saint wanted to know if God loved her, they would look at, they would think about God's work of redemption in the Exodus. And when they wanted to know if God was going to deliver them again, they would again look to God's work of redemption in the Exodus. They would look at Sinai 
and God's promise to be a God to them and to be a God to their children. A pro- God's promise that He would be their God and they would be their children. And as Habakkuk remembered God's deliverance in verses 3 through 15, his redemption from slavery and, unto, uh, and redemption unto freedom and fellowship with God, his lips quivered. When, when we read about his, you know, this, this deep emotion coming from within, it was based on the fact that he knew God as the delivered. Uh, he just couldn't stop. He's just, his knees were knocking, his lips were quivering. Belief driving emotion, knowing God and what he had done, overwhelming the person like a flood. That's what's going on with Habakkuk here in verse 16. So for the saints in the Old Testament, the Exodus was that thing. For the saints of the Old Testament, when they wanted to know, does God love me? He redeemed me from Israel, from Egypt. Does God love me? He placed me in the promised land. Does God love me? Look at all the promises He made to us at Mount Sinai. For us, today, the cross is the major and ultimate and glorious redemptive event in the history of God's people. The deliverance of God's people from Egypt was just a shadow pointing to the ultimate deliverance of God's people from His wrath and from sin in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the focal, the central, the most important event in the history of salvation. Beyond that, it is the greatest display, is the greatest demonstration of God's love for His people. So, when you want to know that God loves you, what do you do? Do you look at the grandest demonstration of that love? The most objective, unquestionable demonstration of God's love for you? The cross of Jesus Christ? Is that where you look if you want to, if when you want to know, does God love me? That's where we need to look. Because it's objective. It cannot be questioned. In all honesty, life is often very challenging. To say it, in the more theological terms, life often stinks. Tragedy, heartbreaks, disappointments can be part of daily living. And more often than not, they are part of daily living. Marriages go bad, kids rebel, life is lonely, struggles within, death, famine, old age, wars, wickedness all around. We look around and we are tempted to wonder if God really loves us. But when we are tempted to do that, we need to take a hike up a little hill just outside of Jerusalem and see the cross of Christ on the hill of Calvary. Because on that hill, God crucified His Son because He loved us. There's nothing going around us that can undo what God did for us on the cross of Calvary. He endured the cross for the joy set before Him that is His people. And because of that, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? That we just recited that. We just affirmed that in our responsive reading of Romans 8 and, uh, and so. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul gives us a long list, but not exhaustive. Shall tribulation Whatever is going on in your whatever sufferings are going on in your life, can they separate you from the love of Christ? Distress, 
persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you can add whatever you want to this list. That does not have the power to separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. All of that for wretched, undeserving sinners such as us. I think we often struggle with contentment and joy. I think I often struggle with contentment and joy because I think I deserve something. I'm not, I'm not going to even add the word better at the end. I just I think I deserve something. And yet, the scriptures talk about me as a worm. W-O-R-M. A worm. As one who is dead in trespasses and sins. As one who is going the opposite way. And yet, God, in His goodness and love, rescued me, rescued you, through the cross of Calvary. And nothing can separate us from that. Christ, God the Son, stood condemned so that we could stand free. We didn't read this, past, this part of Romans 8 in verse 31 and following where Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And all he requires of us is that we believe he did that for us. In, in talking to the Philippian jailer, Paul and Silas, he asks, uh, what, do, what do I need to do? What is, what is it that I bring to the Lord? What, what do I need to do to get this salvation he's talking about? And, and Paul and Silas tell him, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. So in the cross of Christ, we have the love of God demonstrated. But we also have the terror of God demonstrated in the cross of Christ. Look again at verse 16. Again, I'm reading from the ESV, just this one verse. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound of Rottenness enter in my, into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. In the Exodus, as, as he thought about in verses 3 through uh, 15, Habakkuk also saw the power of God in judgment. If God could destroy Egypt's army, the most powerful army in existence at the time, how much more will he do to this tiny nation in the hands of the Babylonians? That's what Habakkuk is thinking about. This is the terror of God. That's the judgment of God upon the wicked. Uh, what is Babylon going to do with, this, do with this tiny little nation that has no power? And they're coming with the most powerful army of the time. The weight of God's judgment made Habakkuk's knees knock. We should have a similar reaction when we think of the cross because the cross speaks not only of God's love but also of God's judgment. When you look at the cross, you must see the terror of it. The father judging his sin on his son. The terror of the wrath of God being poured upon Jesus. 
The separation of the Son from the Father. The cry, my God, my God, why do you forsake, have you forsaken me? The hell that the cross was. God himself paying for the sins of his people, the just for the unjust. A grotesque picture, if we're going to be honest. That's why Paul calls it the offense of the cross. That's why some have wrongly called it cosmic child abuse. It is a grotesque picture, the, the, the wrath of God being poured upon his own son. And when you look at the cross, you should see the ugliness of sin. The marred face of Jesus, the wounds, the nails, the crown of thorns, the bleeding back, that's all your sins doing. We, 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 we are okay with talking about sin collectively getting Jesus to the cross. But if you had been the only person to ever live after Adam, you'd take the same cross to redeem just you. So you can very really, in a very real way say that it's my sins that got him to the cross. Not just a corporate sin, but my individual sins got him to the cross. And the cross is a demonstration of what God thinks of sin. And he bore, Christ bore it with love. John Newton says, I saw one hanging on the tree in agony and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. And never till my dying breath will I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. Every time you look at the cross, Remember, you are charged with Jesus' death. But Newton continues, he says, My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sin, his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. But with a second look, he said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. And then Newton concludes, Thus, while his death, my sin displays for all the world to see. Such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled. That I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. So the, we look at the cross and we see the wrath of God. But we see the wrath of God being appeased by the love of God. So the cross demonstrates the love of God. The cross demonstrates the terror of God. And as we embrace both of them in faith, then we're going to have a faith that's demonstrated in a change of perspective. Look at verses 17, 18, and 19. Though the fig trees, though the fig tree may not blossom... Not fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on his high hills." Knowing that God is his deliverer, Habakkuk is able to face this life with all its difficulties. Nothing has changed other than 
he gazed upon the Lord. That's the only change we have here from the rest of the book in verse 17. He gazed upon the Lord. Now, with a much different attitude than he had in the beginning of the book, he comes before the Lord. He's not demanding an answer anymore. He comes in trust. It says, even if all these bad things, talking about the, the fig tree not blossoming, the, the vine not producing fruit, the olive not producing oil, and so on, if all this happens, I'm going to still, still trust him because the just shall live by faith. Verses 17 through 19 describe the reason Habakkuk can quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade Israel, as he says in verse 16. And Habakkuk's new commitment is to rejoice in the Lord. Once he saw the beauty of God, he saw the love of God, the terror of God, he decides, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. It's a commitment he makes. You see that in verse 18. I will yet, I will, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And notice that he is going to rejoice in God because he's the God of his salvation. He understands that he doesn't need anything else if God is his salvation. It doesn't matter if the Babylonians come and destroys them all because God is the God of their salvation. It doesn't matter if everything is taken from him because God is the God of his salvation. God is the God of your salvation. Are you satisfied with that? Are you satisfied with the God who saved you through Jesus Christ, who poured the guilt of your sins upon Him? Are you satisfied knowing that the love of God is never going to depart from you? Are you satisfied with knowing that there's nothing that can take you away, separate you from the love of God? Habakkuk's now able to joy in the Lord. He's able to say now with the Apostle Paul, whatever I gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. In essence, that's what Habakkuk says in verse 18, uh, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. Can you say that with the Apostle Paul? He's given you the grace, Christ has given the grace to do just that. To count everything, good things, bad things, sufferings, uh, whatever it is, as lost, that we may gain Christ. Do we want to gain Christ? And because of that, Habakkuk's strength is renewed because now the Lord is strength. In verse 19, the Lord God is my strength. Not the standing of Israel, not suffering, nothing in this life is my strength. The Lord God is my strength. Yahweh, who delivered Israel from Egypt, is his strength. The Lord the Lord is going to lift him because he is not trusting on anything else and he doesn't need anything else. Habakkuk finally humbled himself. And the scriptures say, humble yourselves before, therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Did you notice that nothing changed in Habakkuk's circumstances? Nothing, absolutely nothing. The Babylonians are still coming. They are still going to die. 
And it's going to be a death of suffering. And they're going to be in captivity for 70 years apart from, uh, away from the land that God has given them. That is all true. The only thing that changed was that he took his eyes off of the here and now and placed it on his Redeemer. That's the only thing that changed in this whole passage. What is Habakkuk trusting in? Where, what, what is his, where are his gaze? Where is his gaze? Are you ready to do that too? Are you ready to take your eyes off of the present, the here and the now, and look to Christ who is coming again for you? Are you ready to not live life as permanent citizens of this place, but as pilgrims and sojourners of the life to come? Are you ready to see the beauty of your Savior face to face because you will be like Him when He comes back and that's what drives you to live this life? Are you living this life as it were, trans- as, he, as, as, it were, you were as, as, as if you were citizens of the future kingdom that were transported now and live a life that's so foreign to this world that people say, who is that weirdo? Because we are citizens of the Jerusalem to come. If you're ready for that, then think about Christ. Think about the, how ugly your sin is. Think how He has dealt with it for you. Then seek His kingdom and His righteousness. The Lord says to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 26, 3, You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. What kind of peace? Perfect peace in whose mind stayed on you. This experience of keeping our minds upon Jesus is well expressed by the Puritan Samuel Rutherford. In a letter to a parishioner, he said, Since he looked upon me, talk about Christ, since Christ looked upon me, my heart's not my own. He, that is Christ, has run away to heaven with it. Is your heart in heaven? Has Christ run away with your heart? Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love that you've bestowed upon us that nothing can separate us from you. Enable us to live life looking to Christ, looking to life to come, that we might be content with him for asking his name. Amen.